Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Another share that is making a pretty big move today, UBS, uh, shares plunging at one point, at least the ADRs, uh, at one point the most since 2016. A huge reversal, Paul, from just a few months ago when they reported pretty uh, pretty sanguine earnings and or just an outlook that was seemed pretty good. All of a sudden, not so great. Yeah, and I think one of the surprising areas is the wealth management business. That's a business that, for most of these big banks, is supposed to be a steady eddy, predictable business, long-term positive trends, but they actually have some real weakness there. Let's dig into that. Patrick Winters, Bloomberg News Swiss Finance reporter, joining us now. Patrick, what happened here? Hi there. Yeah, well, it's interesting when uh, you guys were mentioning Steady Eddie, that's kind of the market perception of what this business is supposed to be. But it's also a very uh, market dependent business. And, you know, if, if equities are down, if other types of assets are down, that actually translates into losses for the company because it means they have less assets. If they have less assets, uh, then they get less revenues from managing those assets. And that's basically the story here today. Um, it's kind of why UBS has had a bit of a shocking quarter and alarmed some people. Um, you know, also given the read through for some of the other banks uh, coming up reporting in, in the next weeks. So, Patrick, how do you any sense of how UBS is performing relative to its peers in that wealth management business? We saw that Societe Generale also had some some weak results as well. But is there any reason to believe that this is a UBS specific issue? Interesting you mentioned that today, Chief Executive Officer Sergio uh, Amotti was uh, saying that in the U.S. at least, uh, UBS is doing better than its competitors, um, you know, it's, it, especially flow-wise in terms of new money that it's winning from customers. Um, it, you know, they, they, they claim they're the best, but it's also difficult to measure if that's true or not because the other U.S. banks don't break out how much new money they, they get from customers. Um, and as for the European banks, I guess we'll have to wait and see what they report. Um, you know, obviously, it's a bit of an alarming sign if a bank like UBS uh, comes out and says that it's had, you know, that it's lost money. It's lost money in a, in a quarter when it normally gains quite a lot. Well, so let's give some numbers to this, right? They, they said that clients pulled $13 billion in assets during the really ugly three months uh, that ended 2018. Do we have a sense of whether that's stabilized? Do we have a sense of, of which clients were really withdrawing money? In terms of which clients, definitely you can say it was the, the ultra clients. That's the big, big billionaires. Uh, and that's a warning sign because normally you'd think that the billionaires are best placed in, in this type of uh, market environment. They had some surprising uh, outflows in Switzerland uh, and, and also in the U.S. Um, so that's kind of geographically where it's all coming from. Um, and I think, uh, you know, in terms of how they're doing versus competitors, uh, yeah, it's a... It's, it's, uh, it's difficult really to talk about that at this point. What, one thing that I'm struggling to understand, is this a reallocation to another firm? Is this a, a reallocation to alternative strategies by ultra-wealthy individuals? Or is this a wholesale, take your money and stuff it in a mattress? I think it's, I think it's probably the latter. It's taking really? money. You don't, you, you don't trust equities. If you, I mean, if you're believing what, what UBS is saying today, it's, they're not moving it to competitors. They're taking the money, they're stuffing it in a mattress because they don't believe that investing in some type of other uh, asset in the financial marketplace is going to be safe for them at this point in time. 
So, Patrick, one of the things we heard from the U.S. investment banks last week was kind of a similar story in that uh, very rough fourth quarter, particularly that uh, December, uh, but generally a fairly optimistic outlook. Did UBS share that optimistic outlook for 2019? Uh, the outlook was kind of nuanced. Uh, what they said was, um, you know, if things continue like they did in the fourth quarter, you know, then we could be in some trouble but they did not specify if that would be the case or not. So they kind of left it open to interpretation. So going forward, is this any sense of what's to come for asset managers? Because uh, as Paul was mentioning wisely, this has been sort of the, the calm harbor, the safe harbor for a lot of banks is the wealth management division. Is this sort of sounding an alarm saying, uh-uh, rethink that? I think so. I think it is. Uh, you just really have to watch the markets. You know, if, if equity markets keep going down, then you're going to see more of the same. Uh, if they rally and go up, then people in you know, the next quarter might be saying how UBS is you know, the, uh, the role model once again. Uh, you'll just have to wait and see. Patrick, just real quickly, uh, the star banker for UBS, Andrea Orsell, recently left. How damaging is that to that franchise? If you have a big name like this guy leaving, it uh, for sure is not going to help the investment bank. And they've got, they've got two guys who've replaced him. They basically split his job. Uh, between two co-heads, but I don't think, I think it's fair to say this, either of them really have the same name recognition as he does. Um, It's difficult to measure the impact of one guy, uh, but definitely looking at this from the outside, it's a loss for them. Yeah, maybe they don't uh, have the name recognition. They also don't have the paycheck that comes with uh, just how much UBS would have to compensate him uh, for leaving his former employer. Actually, how much uh, he would uh, have to be compensated to leave UBS. Thank you so much, Patrick Winters of Bloomberg News. Well, Lisa, the on-again, off-again trade talks between the U.S. and China appear to be back on again. Uh, To bring us up to date on what's actually going uh, on between the two countries is Michael Herson. Michael is a director covering Asia for the Eurasia Group. He's on the phone with us uh, from New York City. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us. I guess let's just start right off the bat. Um, How likely is it that we will, in fact, get a trade agreement this year? And how limited or broad do you think that agreement could be? Well, I think that there is a reasonable chance of getting some kind of trade agreement within uh, within 2019. I would put it at better than 50% at this point. But I think the last question you raised is a really important one, which is what kind of deal is it? And in my view, it's going to be a quite limited deal. What I mean there is that many of the really tough issues between the two sides are not close to being resolved. And I don't think that President Trump can really um, very easily declare victory by saying these issues are settled because he'll face blowback from Congress, from Democrats, including those running for president, and from trade hawks within his administration and close to his base. So I think what happens is we get a limited deal. Many of the tough issues continue to be negotiated. And that means that there will, there will be a lot of unresolved issues hanging over the relationship, which means the U.S. will be very slow to remove tariffs. And any agreement is at risk of breaking down if the two sides can't get past uh, an impasse on some of these very tough issues. So you think that it's very likely that we're going to get a deal done, but the deal will be mostly useless, very limited, and possibly revoked pretty quickly. Is that right? <laughs> 
I, that, that's right. It'll be. <laughs> I mean, it what use a, is it? it? Well, it will be the the use will be that it will lower the probability of the worst case outcome in terms of what the markets and trading community is looking at, which is further escalation of the of the trade dispute. And, you know, really that would come in the form of the U.S. moving ahead with the threat to lift the tariff rate on most of the goods that the U.S. has imported from China that are under tariff from 10% to 25%. That would be a big move. I think at this point, it's becoming less and less likely that that happens, certainly in the near term. So this removes that worst case probability, or at least it lowers it. But what it doesn't do is resolve the underlying issues, and it probably doesn't lead to a path where the U.S. removes existing tariffs uh, in a very quick manner, if at all. So, Michael, you mentioned that you know this is likely to be a limited deal. Um, you know, some of the thorniest issues between China and the U.S. have historically been around technology, uh, around intellectual property. Um, is there any scenario where you think those issues get addressed uh, with these negotiations, or is it just too difficult at this point? I think it's really hard for me to see a breakthrough happening in those areas. And it's because this this set of issues related to technology, it spans trade and national security for both governments. When you look at um, issues like uh, the rollout of 5G, next generation wireless, or AI, or quantum computing, all of these are seen by both governments as being important not only for economic competitiveness, but also for military and national security advantages as well. And the U.S.-China geopolitical rivalry is heating up. So it's, it's very hard for me to see Beijing making concessions uh, in the areas of tech and innovation policy that meet the high bar of the U.S., Indeed. And actually, the Wall Street Journal today was reporting uh, that several U.S. agencies have uh, shown that China has absolutely doubled down on their wishes and efforts to try to exert uh, tech dominance over the world. Uh, That said, Xi Jinping, president of China, really sounded a different note at the party congress in his address uh, when he talked about, quote, serious dangers to the party. What was your take on that, having spent a lot of time in Beijing uh, as a representative for uh, the U.S. Treasury? Department. Well, it was a very interesting speech. It happened over the weekend where Xi Jinping called together senior party leaders in the central government and the provinces for what's known as a a seminar. And as you said, the theme was avoiding major risks for China. And I think really it's a reflection of Xi Jinping realizing that China faces risks on a number of fronts domestic economy, the external environment, the trade war. Um, growing geopolitical frictions with the U.S. Um, really, it's it's a very difficult time for the leadership right now. But I think really important point here is that what she was saying was that it's not that the the direction of Chinese policy is a mistake. Many of these risks are the inevitable result of the course that China is plotting, which is looking to become a great power and facing blowback from the U.S. or on the domestic economy restructuring the economy, which is going to be painful. So it was a a message to the leadership that China needs to stay vigilant in the risks that it's facing, but not that she is preparing to change course. And I, I certainly don't think he is. 
That's interesting. Thank you very much, Michael. It's a very complicated uh, issue. Um, that was Michael Herson, director covering Asia for the Eurasia Group, uh, on the phone with us from uh, New York City. I think Michael's take is uh, likely to get uh, some type of trade agreement in 2019, uh, but it's likely to be a limited agreement. So uh, some of the thorniest issues unlikely uh, to be addressed uh, at least this year. The volatility in the energy markets reared its head once again today. We've got West Texas Intermediate crude down about $1.57 to $52.23 per barrel. That's down almost 3%. Uh, to bring us up to date on what's going on in the energy markets and maybe what impact China may be having on global energy markets, uh, we bring in Stuart Glickman. Stuart is the head of energy research at CFRA. He's on the phone with us from New Jersey. Uh, Stuart, welcome to the show. Wondered if you could give us a sense just right off the top of kind of what is your call on kind of the global supply and demand situation out there for oil and what impact China may be having on that? Yeah, good morning, Paul. So I think I think the first um, piece of, um, I guess, supply-demand fundamentals that's, that's the most important is the demand situation. And you alluded to China. China represents about a third of expected incremental global demand growth in 2019. So if people start getting worried that, that the demand picture is going to fall apart in China, that, that has a huge impact on demand overall. And I think what's happening is that the, the producers, you know, the OPEC uh, plus consortium, is trying to, um, trying, to, trying to keep pace with falling demand by trying to cut their production as well. Um, and, and so that's, that, that's the give and take between supply and demand right now. It seems to be, um, you know, oil prices are up a little bit relative to the beginning of the year, but they're not up a whole lot. So I'm looking right now. Uh, it, it, it crude uh, traded on the NYMEX. It's currently down a bit, $52.13 a barrel. Where do you see us ending the year here, given all of these crosswinds? I mean, how, can you even make that kind of prediction? It's really tough, um, Lisa. I would say that, you know, we're looking for WTI to be somewhere in the high 50s uh, on average for 2019. So on the one hand, that's up from where we are today. So that sounds like a win. On the other hand, last year, uh, crude averaged $65 a barrel. So really, when you put it in context, we're not looking for any, any great improvement in price for 2019 for producers. And I think when it comes to the E&Ps, I think you have to pivot towards the more defensive names, the names that are doing a better job generating cash flow in that kind of environment. So as we think about supply here, uh, Russia's always been the wild card. Um, very difficult to predict. They talk about cutting production, yet they don't. Um, so on, what's your sense about the supply side of the equation, uh, specifically vis-a-vis -vis Russia? Yeah, Russia is, uh, you know, I think it was Winston Churchill who <laughs> said they were a riddle trapped inside an enigma or maybe vice versa. Um, they, you know, they are, they are going to do what they want to do. Um, they have agreed to cuts of um, around 400,000 barrels a day, um, they plus the others in the non-OPEC piece of OPEC plus. But the December numbers, according to the IEA, showed that Russia actually increased production. Um, so, you know, they have six months to kind of get their act together and get on the same page with OPEC. But the early indications are that there are some call it artistic differences between what Saudi wants and what Russia wants. Well, how much influence does OPEC have on Russia? It doesn't seem like it has much. 
I, I don't think they really do. Um, I think, you know, in 2016, um, when oil prices fell through the floor and landed around $26 a barrel, everyone was on the same page because $26 a barrel worked for nobody. Um, I think that Russia's cost structure is perhaps um, a little better um, than, than Saudi's is. You know, keep in mind that Saudi has all sorts of social programs that it needs to pay for, and I think that Saudi's desired number is probably higher than Russia's is at this point. So I've been seeing uh, data at point after data point showing that U.S. production has risen to new records and makes new highs every month. And I'm just wondering, mm -hmm. how much further do we have to go? How much more can the U.S. ramp up its production here? It's been a real surprise to the market. Uh, I, I would have said three months ago that I thought we were close to topping out, and yet they continue to surprise to the upside. There are some indications that um, there's not a lot of room left for further efficiency improvements. Um, you know, some of the producers have started talking about what they call parent-child parent interference, where wells that you have already drilled are, are getting in the way of wells you would like to drill. So, uh, you know, the technology side of the battle between technology and geology, um, technology is still winning, but, but there is a limit. And, and at the moment, uh, the expectations are that non-OPEC growth led by the U.S. is going to deliver more production in 2019. I, I think it's going to be... I think that delta is going to be less than it was in 2018, though. So just real quickly, Stuart, and what's the preview of the earnings coming up? Fourth quarter earnings for some of these energy companies. Are, is there particular areas that you're going to stay away from? Um, you know, I think the services space looks a little beleaguered at this point. Um, you know, they've, they've, they've suffered uh, for the last couple of years um, in, 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 a, in a weird way. It's, it's, they, they've kind of sowed the seeds of their own demise. They've gotten so good at helping producers get more oil out of the ground that... Um, that it doesn't take quite as many assets to deliver a lot of production growth for the customers. So the customers are winning that battle. Yeah. Uh, Halliburton reported today, and my colleague Paige Marcus uh, published a note on them, you know, maintaining a hold recommendation with them, yeah. um, you know, in, in part because you know, the, the services, you know, services pricing business uh, yeah. doesn't look all that, all that rosy right Stuart, now. Stuart, unfortunately, so, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, though, for being with us. Stuart Glickman, head of energy research at CFRA Research uh, from New Jersey. Well, we did get from the International Monetary Fund a bleak assessment of global growth. They forecast the weakest growth around the world in three years. And they are not blaming China, frankly, for their downgraded assessment of the world, but rather Europe, in particular Germany. Let's talk about how that is shaping up some of the views of investors. Jack Ablin joining us now, founding partner and chief investment officer at Crescent Wealth Advisors. Jack, thank you so much for joining us from Palm Beach, Florida. I'm just wondering, do you care what the IMF says about global growth? Are they accurate and, and sort of relevant to you? You know, I do care about changes in their growth forecasts, uh, and they do highlight things that are a concern of theirs. But remember, IMF is really there for the emerging markets, and so uh, I tend to pay more attention to what they say in that regard rather than the developed world. So you're not that concerned about Europe right now? Not that concerned. Not, I mean, I'm and c concerned about Europe, but I'm not more concerned about Europe now that the IMF has put it on their radar screen. 
So Jack, how concerned are you or how do you view emerging markets? You know, in that volatility we experienced in the fourth quarter, the emerging markets got hit uh, extremely hard, uh, bouncing back a little bit here in the new year. How are you positioned in emerging markets and what is your recommendation to your clients? Sure. Um, well, we are underweight emerging markets, even though I would argue from on a historical basis, they're pretty cheap. In fact, they're probably the cheapest major asset class in uh, the world right now. Um, but there are a lot of things that need to be sorted out, um, not the least of which, of course, is just near-term economic trajectory. But more broadly, you know, I want to really better understand this uh, tit-for-tat trade issue with China. You know, I think investors originally thought this was a tactic. Uh, it has now since morphed into a strategy. Um, and the question really is, is this ultimately a policy, a policy that reverses 35 years of uh, outsourcing globalization and, 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 and finding the best um, you know, producers for the best goods and you know, a shift to a more inward focused uh, where perhaps this wall kind of personifies that, that worldview. Well, Jack, you mentioned China. We had a guest on earlier who suggested that a deal, a uh, trade deal between the U.S. and China is possible, is likely maybe 50 percent odds, but that it will be a very limited deal, not have a lot of teeth into it. Assuming that's the backdrop, how important is getting a deal, any deal with China to the overall equity markets? I think it's important that um, there is a dialogue, uh, that there is some back and forth here, that this isn't just a uh, you know, uh, digging heels into the sand, so to speak. Um, and so I, I would like to make sure that there is some trade detente going on with China. Um, but you're right. I mean, there's still larger issues looming uh, relative to more than just necessarily these, these tariffs. In fact, uh, there are many analysts now uh, believe that these tariffs will, will be here to stay permanently. Um, or at least on many items. And I think businesses are going to have to adjust to that. And, and that's where I have uh, some concern. I want to talk a little bit about UBS and what they reported with respect to $13 billion of client withdrawals. And we were just uh, talking about how this really came from the high net worth, the ultra high net worth individuals who basically were trying to stuff cash into a mattress. Do you adhere to the same strategy? Of stuffing cash into right a now, yeah. Do you think that that's a that's a prudent thing to do to take money out of equities, cash out in the in the good days, and and sort of just put money aside? Yeah, I mean, I will say we normally don't carry much of a cash balance, and we do have a cash balance now. Um, why? You know, I'm not. Sh why I think that there are still, like I said, there are still things that need to be sorted out. While valuations uh, among U.S. large caps. You know, you you can convince yourself that they're fair value. I mean, it all depends on on what what metrics you want to use. I mean, anyone who's bullish today on U.S. equities is looking at forward PE. Um, those of us who look longer term, whether it's um, you know a Schiller metric or price to book, price to sales, something that looks back today relative to the last 30 years still argues that we're still above the 75th percentile of our you know historical valuation range so 
it's not as cheap as perhaps it appears. But I think more importantly, um, you know, I watch credit conditions. And while we had this nice little uh, bounce, I think because uh, investor attitudes just got too negative too quickly um, last year, um, but lenders are still uh, tightening their purse strings. And I think the ec- the environment uh, for liquidity and credit is not as easy as it was this time last year. And I think that creates a, you know, diff- a little more difficult environment to, to take on risk. Well, given your more, I guess, cautious outlook, but certainly near, near term, where are you putting money to work these days? Sure. So, um, you know, within the, um, the the context of the world, um, U.S. You know, you could argue is fair price to overpriced, depending on what metric you use. International developed, uh, you know, Europe, Japan, Lat, uh, Europe, Japan, uh, U.K. Certainly cheap, uh, or at least relatively cheap to the U.S. and probably uh, slightly below fair value relative to long term. Uh, and emerging markets uh, cheap. So uh, we are underweight equity risk exposure, but within that, we're tilted more toward the international space than um, here in the U.S. What was the most recent change to your allocation? I think that um, it was really this notion that, um, you know, we got into this environment where interest rates were held too low for too long. Um, you know, if you look back, for example, the Taylor rule would have argued that the Fed should have started tightening back in uh, 2013. And of course, the taper tantrum kind of scared uh, central bankers into perhaps sitting tight. Um, and when you get an environment where uh, rates are too cheap for too long, it's very similar to what happened in 1999 under Greenspan when he was fearful about Y2K. He was reading Ed Yardeni's work about how the lights weren't going to turn on. Yeah. And so he didn't have much of a technology background. And so he decided to keep liquidity among the banks very high and interest rates artificially low. Uh, we saw what happened. We got uh, large cap tech yeah. uh, leading the way higher, very similar to what we had now. So yeah. possibly um, as rates start to rise domestically, yeah. we could see a shift out of large cap growth yeah. and into small cap value. Jack Ablin, thank you so much for joining us. Jack Ablin, Chief Investment Officer and Founding Partner of Crescent Wealth Advisors from Palm Beach, Florida. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.